So, over this past week, my family has been on vacation without me. Which is, thank you. Thank you for that. That was an appropriate response. I can give the benediction now. Um, they, they, went, they went on a pretty epic trip. They went, they went um, river rafting down the Green River out in Utah, which the Green River is one of the major tributaries to the Colorado River. They, they went river rafting down the Green River, going down the uh, Desolation and Gray Canyons, which, if you're very familiar, it's actually one of the most, one of the most remote places in the contiguous U.S., Right, one of the most remote places in the contiguous U.S. The rapids aren't horrible out there, so it's not. So, so I mean, like my five-year-old was there, and, and he had a blast and everything. And and I think actually, given uh, given the weather, um, river levels were pretty low, so the rapids were even less intimidating than what they would normally be. But either way, they were gone for an entire week. So, so they left last Thursday, and then they just got back at 1:45 a.m. today. Um, I know, because I was laying in my bed trying to pretend to be asleep. It's kind of one of those moments where you're like, if I just pretend that I'm asleep, maybe I'll actually fall asleep, but that, that didn't happen. But uh, so, so, so here they were. They, they were gone the entire time. Um, they put into the river last, last Saturday, and then, uh, and then they spent a week floating um, with some rowing, too, because, again, water levels. But uh, they spent a week going down. And so the whole time, I'm not able to communicate because it's one of the most remote places in the U.S. So, so there's no way I can talk to them. So, so I'm sitting there all week long knowing that if I get a phone call from them, it means there's a problem. It means something's gone wrong. So seriously, I, w- I was checking every spam call all week long. Normally, I'm like, Psh, getting a phone call from California. No one knows me in California. I'm not answering that. Um, but I, I answered them all this week. They all love me now. I answered them all, like, okay, is everything okay? Oh, nope, you're spam. Um, so, so I answered them all, just kind of waiting, because, you know, I, I'm not typically a very anxious person, but still, like, you just, you don't know. You don't know what's going on. Um, I haven't gone that long without having some form of communication with my family. And then Thursday rolled around. Thursday, the day that when they were supposed to be getting off of the river. Thursday rolled around, and finally I got that phone call later in the evening from my wife. We're off the river now. We're driving back to Colorado. Things went really well. We had a great time. And then immediately, I could feel comfort. I hadn't even realized how, how, how anxious I think I really was about the whole thing until all of a sudden I felt that comfort of recognizing, okay, they're off the river now. They're safe now. Things are good. I continued to go about taking care of my, my home chores while they were gone. I fed guinea pigs. I fed guinea pigs while my kids were rafting in Utah. <laughs> I fed the guinea pigs. I watered the plants. I harvested the vegetables. I did all of the things. Um, but I did it with a sense of comfort because my family was off the river. Comfort is such a glorious thing. Comfort is such an amazing thing to be able to find that rest, to be able to know that everything's going to be okay. But comfort at the same time isn't something that this world offers us freely, right? We go into the world, we look at the news, we look at social media, we, we talk to our friends and our neighbors, and rather we get the opposite of comfort. Rather, we keep being told that the world is coming to an end, everything's run amok, everything's horrible, everything's wrong, we should all be anxious, we should all be scared, we should all be angry, right? 
Those are the messages that we continue to get from the world, not a message of comfort. This morning, I want to spend some time looking at comfort, specifically looking at the comfort that comes from the kingdom of Christ. The comfort that comes from the kingdom of Christ. We continue on with our series in John today, looking at the final hours of Jesus' life. So we spent a considerable time going through the farewell discourse, Jesus' last words to his disciples, his last kind of communications, his last teachings to the disciples to the disciples. And then we've gotten up to, uh, to, to just Pastor Justin's sermon last week, and we're beginning, to see the, uh, we're beginning to see things unfold rather quickly as we make our way to the cross and to the resurrection. Last week, we saw Jesus' arrest. We saw the beginning proceedings before the Jews, before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership. And this week, this week, we take a turn and we look at Jesus standing before Standing in, uh, standing in council before the uh, Roman authorities. So we're going to spend some time on that today. Looking at John chapter 18, verses 28 to 40. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. Again, that's John chapter 18, verses 28 to 40. And we'll read through the passage together. Beginning in verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, he would not, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the words that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief, and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. Again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this opportunity to be in your presence as you speak to us through this text, through the scripture. Father, I pray that you would communicate clearly to us. Father, I pray that you would, that, that all of the calluses that have accumulated in our hearts, Father, that all of the things that separate, that all of the hurdles that stand between us and seeing your beauty and your majesty more clearly, Father, that you would remove those things, Father, and that you would just allow us to bask in the glory of the radiance of your Son during this time. Father, that we would be in awe of him. Lord, please just evoke in us a spirit of worship as we hear your word. Father, we pray this through your son and by your spirit. 
Amen. Now, one note to kind of hit before we dig into this passage. Most of you recognize that in your Bible, we have four different Gospels. All right, we have four Gospels. And since we have four Gospels, and this shouldn't be all that surprising, but since we have four Gospels, they, they each kind of work in tandem with one another. In other words, they, none of them attempt to exhaustively give you all of the historical details of an account. No, that's not the goal of them. They're not trying to give you every single detail that happened. Rather, the goal of the gospel writers is to tell you about Christ and his ministry and what he continues to do, not necessarily all the historical details. So it can be, it can be incredibly profitable then to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John beside each other and to kind of piece together the historical details. Like, okay, so how, how exactly did this account unfold? What happened here? What's the order of these events? And that can be a really good thing. However, the potential hurdle to that, the potential problem that we could run into is when all of a sudden we begin to treat the four distinct gospels as, as a hurdle, all of a sudden, we see them as a problem that needs to be solved. And instead, we begin to value this idea of just having one gospel instead of four gospels. When indeed, God intended for us to have four gospels, each with its distinct voice, not in contradiction with one another, each complementing each other, but at the same, each saying something a bit distinct about who Jesus Christ is. So I say all of that because it's incredibly tempting for me as I, as I go through this passage to want to, to want to focus on all the historical details and to try to lay out, okay, here's when this event happened, here's when this event happened, because John doesn't include all the events here. And again, that shouldn't be surprising. But, but instead, I'm going to try to stick to what John is saying this morning. I'm going to try to stick to what he's presenting and what God wants us to get from this passage. I do encourage you, though. Again, I think it's incredibly profitable. Read through this passage today, and then tomorrow, go look at Matthew. And then the next day, go look at Mark. And then the next day, go look at Luke. And actually begin comparing them side by side and working through those details because that is an incredibly useful process to be able to compare them and to be able to see how different gospel writers emphasize different things. And they do it for, for their own distinct reasons. And so it's a fun, it's, it's an amazing thing to be able to see and it gives you a greater understanding and a greater um, depth to, to God's word as you wrestle through it. But for the most part, with only just occasional mentions of the other Gospels, we're going to focus on John this morning. As we look at this passage, verse 36 in particular is kind of key to understanding this whole passage. Again, this passage isn't meant to just tell the historical details about a Roman proceeding and a Roman, Roman trial. John is attempting to do something far greater than this. In verse 36, Jesus tells us twice that his kingdom is not of or not from this world. Well, what does he mean by kingdom? He actually, he hasn't, I don't know if you've noticed, he hasn't used that language much in the Gospel of John. In fact, he's only spoken about his kingdom two other times so far in the Gospel of John. And they, and they were back, they, they both occurred at the same time back in chapter 3 in his dealings with Nicodemus. Aside from that, Jesus hasn't spoken about his kingdom since then. Which, again, is interesting if you go compare it to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where he speaks about the kingdom so much. But I'm not going to focus on that, because I just told you I'm not going to focus on that. But it's hard for me. Do you know how hard that is for me? Um... Uh, so he hasn't used that language of kingdom very much. But by kingdom, what does he mean here? What does he mean by kingdom? 
By kingdom, when he's talking about, he's not talking about a territory or a piece of land or something like that. That's not what he means. He's not talking about, here here I am on earth, and I have this little kingdom over here, and you guys have your kingdom over there, and we shall occasionally meet and shake hands and be friends. Like, that's not not what he's talking about when he's talking about kingdom. He's not talking about an actual piece of land or a realm, but he's referring to his reign. It's not a realm. It's about his reign and his rule. And specifically, the reign that had been promised back in the Old Testament. The Old Testament had all these promises and all these expectations about a coming reigning Messiah, rule of the Messiah, where where, where the promises of God would be fulfilled. And these have begun in the work and the presence of Christ in his ministry, in his ministry back in first century, first century Israel, and then they continue on even today. And indeed, we still have things to look forward to. So, so his reign has both, has both already begun to be fulfilled, but we're still waiting for the future fulfillment. We're still waiting for even more to come, which is exciting. All right, so this is kind of what he's talking about when he's talking about his kingdom. But again, why does he, why does he frame it as kingdom of earth or kingdom from, or sorry, kingdom of this world or kingdom from this world? When he does it that way, what he's attempting to do is draw a contrast, right? He's saying his kingdom is not like the kingdom of the world. It's not like the kingdom that is from below. It's not like the kingdom of, uh, right, that is not from above. There's two different kingdoms at work. There's two different things that he's describing. And this is going to frame our passage. John is attempting to show us an example here at the beginning of the passage of what the kingdom of the world looks like. And then as we progress, we'll see Jesus continue to explicate, continue to describe what the kingdom of heaven, what his kingdom, the kingdom of Christ looks like. So so as we work our way through the passage then, the first half of the passage will focus on the kingdom below, and the second half of the passage will focus on the kingdom above. So as our scene opens then, the Jews are are bringing Jesus to Pilate because they're under Roman rule. They're under a Roman rule, right? They want to execute Jesus. And when you're under Roman rule, you really have a lot of freedom to do a lot of things. But there were certain things that Rome would not let you do. One of the the rights that Rome held onto was specifically the right of execution. Israel was not allowed to execute people according to what it wanted. So Israel, the, the Jews, they had to actually come to a Roman ruler, in this case Pilate, about the exchange and what we learn about the kingdom below as we look at this exchange. The first thing to note is that the kingdom, of, um, the kingdom from below is impure. They're impure. Notice John's remark about the Sanhedrin here in verse 28. They didn't want to enter into Pilate's quarters because they didn't want to be defiled. They didn't want to enter into into his quarters because they didn't want to be defiled. There's irony there. That should almost make you laugh, right? They they didn't want to be impure because you see to celebrate to celebrate the the upcoming events of the of the feast of unleavened bread and of the Passover, they had to be ritually clean. And there were certain things that they had to do to be ritually clean. Some of them were actually prescribed in the Bible, in the Old Testament, but most of them were not. Most of the things they had to do to be ceremonially clean was actually tradition. It was things that they came up with on their own. And one of the rules that they came up with on their own was that you shouldn't go into a non-Jewish home. If you go into a non-Jewish home, boom, 
you're, you're defiled, you're dirty now, and therefore you can't take part. So in an effort, in an effort to, to maintain ritual purity, in an effort to maintain ritual purity, they didn't want to go into his home, which then is funny because, I mean, again, remember who these people are and what they're trying to accomplish right now. They're trying to accomplish getting an innocent man, someone who they were struggling to find any accusations against, they're trying to get him executed in the most horrible way possible through crucifixion. They're wanting to do one of the most horrible acts of all history, and they know that they're wrong, and they know they have no ground to do it on, but they're really concerned about maintaining their purity while they do it. See, John likes irony. So John will point things out like this as we go along because they wanted to stay pure. Isn't that nice? Isn't that sweet of them? He'll point things out like that because he's trying to draw emphasis to the fact that they are so obviously impure. They are so obviously impure and corrupt, and their concerns are not genuinely about the things of God. Their concerns are not genuinely about righteousness. Their concerns are not genuinely about the things of of the kingdom above. They're truly only about the kingdom below. The kingdom below is an impure kingdom. But they're concerned to make sure they look pure, right? And that's what we find today. What do we find as we look at the things of the world? Though there's certainly impurity, there's often that desire to maintain a semblance, to look pure. So we see things like virtue signaling. We see things like bumper stickers. We see things like, uh, I mean, just over and over, just various things that people want to do to try to appear righteous and to try to appear, uh, appear pure. But at the same time, it often doesn't reflect a heart condition. Um, I, I had some friends who went to a Christian college And um, one of the things that struck them when they got there is, uh, and this isn't every Christian college by any means, but this one in particular, one of the things that they saw regularly was they would go down for breakfast on Sunday morning in their dorms, and and they would see students sitting around who were all dressed up as though they had been to church or were on their way to church. And they were like, oh, wow, this is a very religious group of college students. That's cool. I mean, that's neat. Um, As time went on, they began to realize a lot of those students actually had zero intentions of going to church that day. Rather, they were dressing up because they wanted to look like they had gone to church or were going to church. They were attempting to try to portray themselves as being pure, though at the same time, it was really quite far from their hearts. Are you more concerned? Are you more concerned about the way that you look Or are you more concerned about actually being pure? Are you concerned about being perceived as pure or genuinely being pure? Do you put on a good face at church while you recognize that the purity isn't really there behind closed doors? It's not really there at home. Do do you put on, do you put an act on in front of certain people to try to come across as better than you actually are when you know in the back of your mind this is all an act? That's, that's the kingdom below. That's the kingdom of this world. The second thing about the kingdom of this world is that it's deceptive. So Pilate goes on to meet them outside, and, and the hearing immediately begins with an invitation for the formal accusations. Pilate said, okay, well, what have you got for me? Bring the accusations. Now, it's interesting because, again, they had been struggling to find an exact accusation to bring against him. 
They had been struggling because Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. They couldn't find anything. That's an amazing thing. They couldn't find a single thing to bring against him. But if they wanted Rome to crucify him, then he had to do something significant to earn Rome's attention. It couldn't just be anything. It had to be something of some significance. So, so basically, he comes, so Pilate asks them, what accusation do, do you bring? And verse 30, they respond, if this man were not evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. So basically what they're saying is, Pilate, Pilate, Jesus is a really bad guy, and, and you're just going to have to take our word on it. Like, he's, he's really bad, but just, just believe us, and we're not going to bring a formal accusation because, I mean, we're close. You can trust us, Right? Right? They don't even have a formal, a formal accusation for, uh, for their, to bring against Jesus. It's really just a take our word for it. They don't have anything of significance, so they're trying to deceive their way into getting the sentence that they want. They rely on deception to accomplish their purposes. Are we, are we a people who are committed to honesty? Um, I find that oftentimes we, uh, I find that oftentimes it's easy to sink into deception for various motivations and for various purposes. And sometimes we baptize those lies as being white lies or just bending the truth when really still they're just lies. Sometimes we lie to get, to get out of something. Like, oh, I can't help you with this because, well, I'm busy that day and I have things, but maybe really we actually could have moved our schedule around. Maybe we could have done something to make it happen. Sometimes we lie because we want to protect someone's feelings or we're trying to protect ourselves socially. We're afraid of social shame. So, so we don't want to tell someone the truth about something that we've noticed. Sometimes it might be as simple as to come when my wife comes to me and says, hey, how does this outfit look? And my response is, it looks great. Uh, my wife at this point in our marriage has learned that she should never ask me how an outfit looks because my answer will always be, it looks great, hun. And that will continue to be my answer until the day that we both die. That outfit looks great on you, hun. Where are you tempted to lie? Where are you tempted to lie? Maybe, maybe you're just too afraid of the consequences of actually being honest to risk telling the truth. Maybe you stretch the truth to make yourself look more knowledgeable, to make yourself look more friendly, to make yourself look nicer. These are all things that, I, unfortunately, I find very often and even struggle with on my, own, on my own end. The third thing to note is that the ways of the world are violent. The ways of the world are violent. Pilate, probably responding to the shabby accusations that have been leveled against Jesus, tells him in verse 31, fine then, deal with it yourself. Well, again, that doesn't work for the Jews because they're seeking out an execution. So they need Roman permission to actually allow this crucifixion to move forward. So they push back on Pilate. And though the narrative in John doesn't spell it out here, we know that their petition is successful. In fact, the other Gospels tell us that they go on to provide more specific accusations. So, so this is when they begin making accusations against Jesus. The Sanhedrin, at the end of the day, is making things up because they're bloodthirsty. They're bloodthirsty. They're violent. They want Jesus to die. Jesus has done nothing wrong, and they know it. But they're jealous, and they're scared, and so they're willing to deal with it in a violent way. 
Unfortunately, this is another thing that I find so often in the world. Violence. Right? Violence. Many, many people, I've known people who have struggled with violence. Um, Just as a quick aside, if you're someone who does struggle with violence, who does struggle lashing out physically when you're angry, my my encouragement is to stop, stop everything and go get help. Right, that's not something we. That's not something we can um, we can ignore or not take seriously. So please do seek help for that. Maybe, maybe what you struggle with more is your tongue, though. Maybe it's not physical violence. Maybe it's emotional violence. Maybe you lash out in anger at people. Again, this is something that we see in the world. In fact, this is something that the world even even lauds and applauds. Right. I mean, how many times have we seen in recent history where someone gets torn into and the person who does, the person who demeans, the person who tears the other person down is praised for being so virtuous and praised for being so right? We're a culture that has grown to love violence and to love a domineering attitude and to love tearing other people down. And yet, that doesn't describe the kingdom above. That's strictly something for the kingdom of the world. These three things typify, then, the worldly kingdom. Christ's king, Christ's king, kingdom, on the other hand, looks very different from the kingdom of this world. Christ's kingdom is very different. Looking at verses 33 to 38, Pilate takes us back into his headquarters. So, so, so up until this point in time, this has been a very public conversation out in front of the Jewish Sanhedrin. Now Pilate removes Jesus, and they go back to more of a private conversation. And there Pilate asks him the question, are you really the king of the Jews? Now, in our account, that accusation hadn't actually come up yet, but we learned from the other Gospels that that is one of the formal accusations that was made against Jesus, that he had declared himself to be king. Now, this, this is a significant charge because Rome didn't allow the nations that they ruled to have their own kings. In some cases, they might allow a patron king. They might allow someone who, whom they had assigned and who functioned more as a figurehead and more of a puppet ruler, but without any real power. So a potential insurrectionist attempting to take the throne was something that Rome would have taken very seriously. So here, Pilate looks at Jesus who, mind you, at this point in time, he had been beaten, right? He had been beaten, probably wearing tattered clothing, probably probably didn't look very royal at this time, had been betrayed by his own people, had been betrayed by the religious authorities. Pilate looks at him and says, really? You're the king? Right? By the ancient standards, this is no way what a king would look like. This is no way. This is not what you would expect from from a king. You can almost hear it in in Pilate's tone as he says, you, you're the king of the Jews? Come on, Jesus, really? Now, Pilate is a powerful figure, and people had to be cautious about how they responded to the powerful figure. But in in typical Jesus' fashion, he responds to Pilate's question with another question. Um, he, He responds basically with, is that who you think I am? Or are you just parroting the accusation that's been made against me by the Sanhedrin? Pilate responds, am I a Jew? Meaning that your claims wouldn't really have any effect on me. I'm I'm Rome. It has no bearing on the matter. 
But uh, so, so, so whether, whether Jesus was a king or not wouldn't ultimately have any ramifications for, for Pilate. So what we see then, <laughs> Pilate, um, Jesus then goes on to get more at the heart of the matter and explicitly embraces his kingdom, but it's a different sort of kingdom than what anyone had expected. It's a different sort of kingdom than what the world had seen. Verse 36, again, my kingdom is not of this world. In contrast to the kingdom of this world, Christ lays out what makes his kingdom so distinct. And he lays out three points as well. The first point that he lays out is that his kingdom is gentle. It's not violent. He states in verse 36 again, my kingdom, uh, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. Now, this isn't saying that someday his people will be fighters. It's just not today. It's not saying that his kingdom is, uh, it, it's not saying that his kingdom isn't active in this world either. Certainly, his kingdom is very much active in the world. It's very at work, very much at work in the world that we see around us. He's not saying that. What he's saying is that his kingdom is radically different from worldly kingdoms. It's radically different from worldly kingdoms. Worldly kingdoms resort to violence to accomplish their purposes. They hurt. They inflict pain. But Jesus does the exact opposite. Jesus actually takes the hurt and the pain upon himself. And the kingdom ultimately comes to reflect its king. Jesus is gentle and lowly of heart, and so is his kingdom. When Peter takes up arms back in the Garden of Gethsemane and attacks the, the servant of the, of the high priest and cuts off his ear, Jesus tells him, this isn't my way. This isn't what my kingdom is about. Rather, it's through the blood of the king that the kingdom is founded. And not only that, but as we look at church history, we also see that it's through the blood of his people that the kingdom continues to, continues to move forward. Again, this is so different from our world. In our world today, the one who mocks the noisiest wins. The victors are celebrated. The bold, the loud, the brash are adored, but not the gentle. Gentleness isn't praised in our culture today. It's something that's looked down upon. The gentle, on the other hand, are those who patiently endure. The gentle are those who patiently endure even through tough times, even through hardships, even through trials, even through accusations, even through mockery, they continue to patiently endure. And as they continue to patiently endure, they're strengthened in the midst of it, almost like, almost like how you get a callus, right? You get calluses on your hands by continuing to work them, by continuing to use them, by continuing to do things with them, so that your soft skin goes from being soft to beginning to become hard becoming more useful, becoming more practical so that you can do more things with them. That's the way God's people continue to grow as well through patient, gentle endurance. So the gentle arms that we bear, that the kingdom people bear, are not the violence of the ways of the world, but rather the gentle arms that we bear are through, word, through God's word and through prayer, applied in love to those who would seek to attack us. It's through having conversations where we'd rather understand than be understood. It's about showing hospitality to the, uh, to, to the angry social media warriors. It's about turning the other cheek and when we're mocked and derided. It's in those moments that we get to see the gentle kingdom of Christ 
actually conquer. The second thing about the kingdom, Christ's kingdom is true. It's true. Pilate responds to Jesus almost excitedly. So you do admit then to being a king. And Jesus responds again, responds again, attempting to kind of correct Pilate's understanding of king and kingdom. While the kingdom of the world cares little about the truth, Christ and his kingdom are deeply concerned about the truth. In fact, Jesus claims that that's why he's come. That's why he's become incarnate. That's why he's taken on flesh and humanity. We saw that back in John chapter 1, verse 14, where it reads, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, what kind of truth is it that Jesus is so concerned about then? What sort of truth is it that brought him to us? What sort of truth is he proclaiming to us? Is he, is he teaching us algebra? Or is he teaching us about geography? What, what form of truth is he interested in? Rather, it's a different type of truth. The type of truth that he's talking about is the most important form of truth. It's the revelation. It's the revealing of God the Father. We see that in John chapter 14 where Jesus declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the perfect revelation of the glory of the Father. And that's the truth that he came for, to reveal God. The author of Hebrews writes in um, chapter 1, verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That was Jesus' mission. That's what he does. And not only him, but those who are in his kingdom are tasked with the same sort of mission. We are called to reveal the glory of the Father, to obediently share the truth about who God is. Are you committed to making God known? Is that something that marks you as as someone who is part of his kingdom? Are you concerned about making him known to your neighbors or at work or with your family? Or what about those casual relationships at your kid's sporting event? Are you committed to making God known in our community? If this was so central to Christ and to his heart, it should be just as central to us, his kingdom citizens. This is something that should be a daily burden to our hearts. This is something that should mark our prayer life. How can I continue to make God known in these various relationships? This is something that we should be praying for Lindstrom, Minnesota about. How, how can we as God's people continue to, to go about the work of evangelizing and making disciples, of sharing our lives, of opening our lives to other people so that we can make God known to them? Is that something that marks each of us as God's kingdom people? Is that something that we care about? Again, so central to Jesus' heart, it should be so central to ours as well. Now, Pilate hadn't gotten the answer from Jesus that he had been searching for. Jesus was no physical threat to Rome. Pilate responded probably in exasperation to Jesus' talk on the truth. What even is the truth? Now, Again, this is ironic because here Pilate is standing in as judge. He should be the most concerned about truth. And yet he throws his hands up in exasperation. What is truth? Or maybe the better question would have been, who is truth? Then we see the scene change again. The private conversation ends. Jesus and Pilate go back out before the Sanhedrin. Pilate announces his, his uh, verdict before the Jews, and we see the third major contrast. We see that Christ's kingdom is pure. 
from the very lips of the Roman governor. From the very lips of the Roman governor drips a statement that is far more profoundly true than he can possibly imagine. He says, I find no guilt in this man. I find no guilt in this man. He doesn't even begin to understand how true that really is because there is no guilt. Jesus is entirely pure and without any blemish. And just as the Passover lambs were inspected prior to, to, to their sacrifice to make sure they also were pure and without blemish, Christ himself has now been inspected and declared to be absolutely pure. Again, just as the king so also his citizens. This isn't just describing Jesus. This has bearing for us also as kingdom people. Christ has established a kingdom that is called to purity. Its citizens are called to be those who pursue purity in speech and in action and in thoughts, even to the degree that our enemies, that those who don't like us, would also similarly have to confess, I can't find any fault in him. I don't like him. I, 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 don't, I don't want to be friends with him. But man, I don't see any faults. Is that, is that what your enemies, those who dislike you, is that what they would say about you? I don't see any faults. Jesus describes it this way in Matthew ten sixteen. He calls us to be innocent as doves. A people committed to seeing purity and holiness in every area of life, from business dealings to personal relationships to personal habits to internet viewing in every area of life called to radical purity. Pilate's declaration of Christ's innocence, of course, does not deter the people. Pilate employed a Passover tradition, allowing the people to choose one person to be released. In one more act of irony, the people choose Barabbas. The Barabbas, the man who is called a robber. Now, a robber can be translated broadly or understood broadly. If you go and look at the other Gospels like Luke, Luke actually includes that he's an insurrectionist and a murderer. So this is the exact sort of person that Rome would be so concerned about and that Rome would want, certainly want, executed. These are the very things that Jesus himself is actually, at least some of the things that Jesus himself is actually being accused of, of being an insurrectionist. Barabbas actually is that. And just to, just to up the ante a little bit, his name, his name actually literally, Bar means son, and then, and then Abba, you guys are probably familiar with, father. His name literally means son of the father. That's Barabbas. Now, the people cry out, forget Jesus. We're not interested in him. Go ahead and deliver Barabbas. Go ahead and deliver him out of death. So on Passover, when so long ago God had delivered the Israelites from their enemies, now Israel would deliver God over to die. What seems like the ultimate victory for the kingdom of the world, the death of Christ through impurity and deception and violence, only serves for their defeat. When they win, they really lose. In their victory, they find failure. Christ's blood unlocks the gates to the city walls of a better kingdom, a kingdom of gentleness, truth, and purity, and he invites in the weary and the heavy laden to come and find rest with him. For those of you who are here this morning who don't know this kingdom, Jesus has paved a way for you. Citizenship, it's a hard word to say, requires gentleness, truth, 
and purity. It requires those things. So honestly, none of us should be allowed entrance into the kingdom because none of us have arrived. None of us, none of us fulfill this, this requirement of gentleness, truth, and purity. But we have a king. We have a king who has stepped down from his throne, who has come out of the city gates, and who has welcomed us. He takes off his royal righteous robes, his, his scarlet robe, and he drapes it upon our shoulders, and he calls us brother. And he invites us in, not on our own merit. We have nothing to bring. We have nothing to bring, but on the merit of the robes that he has draped us with, on what he has accomplished through his death and through his resurrection. So if you're here today and you don't know this kingdom of Christ, you don't know him, I encourage you to accept him, to accept his invitation, to do what you never could have done. For those of you who are here this morning who know Christ, my brothers and sisters who have trusted in Christ, who are in this new kingdom of our Lord, of our Christ, my question is, is are you growing into your citizenship? Are you growing into your citizenship? Or do you find yourself, as we look at this portrayal of the kingdom of the world, do you find yourself looking more like the kingdom of the world? Are you growing into your citizenship? Sometimes when we enter a new land, we continue to maintain the same accent. We continue to to, to dress in the same way. We eat the same things of the old land. We continue to do the same things. And we don't genuinely step into the citizenship of our new kingdom. Well, how do we do this then? How do we grow into this citizenship? There is only one way. By setting our eyes upon its king. By setting our eyes upon its king. As you draw near to him, you will continue to grow to look like him. And in that, you will find your comfort and you will find your rest. As you continue to, to dwell in his presence, you will, continue, you will begin to reflect more and more of his glory. You will begin to reflect more and more of these habits of gentleness, of purity, of truthfulness. These things will become yours as you are rooted in him. A branch can't grow on its own. It has to be connected to the vine for its sustenance. You can't warm yourself. You have to draw near to the flame in order to be warmed. In order for us to grow into our citizenship, we have to draw near to Christ and to his presence. We have to be connected to him for our sustenance. So come to the vine and find rest and comfort for your soul. Are you weary this morning? Are you heavy laden? Are you tired? Are you overwhelmed by the kingdom of this world, by its demands, by its requirements, by its violence, by its impurity? Your king bids you to come and find comfort in the kingdom of his son, of his Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this morning. Lord, again, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for your son. We thank you for what he has accomplished. We thank you for his magnificence and his glory and his splendor. We thank you that he has stepped down from his throne and come out of the city gates to welcome us in. Father, I pray that that thought would continue to move and to stir our hearts, that we would continue to be in awe of that, of this gentle, pure, truthful king. Father, please continue to work in our hearts. Please continue to draw us near to him. Father, we pray this through your son and by your spirit. Amen. All right. Please stand for the benediction. 
This comes out of Jude, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, authority before all time, now and forevermore. Amen. May the grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Hi, everybody. Pastor Jason here, and I want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning. I pray it's been a blessing to you. I want to encourage you now to visit our church website, www.lakesfree.org. There you can find more information about our church. You can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free. And you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests. And we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage. And we would appreciate your support. I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed week, and we will look forward to seeing you soon.